Throughout this series, we've explored the evolving consumer of the future, from where they'll live, work, and shop, both in the real and virtual worlds, to their economic condition and prospects for the future, as well as their relationship with technology and the changing nature of the physical retail stores that will serve them. What we see developing is a picture of a consumer sitting at the intersection of truly extraordinary societal, technological, economic, and demographic change. I'm Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit, and in this second season of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's podcast series on the fast-changing retail industry presented by Brookfield Properties, we're exploring the consumer of the future. Who are they? And how are their economic, technological, and social realities shaping new behaviors and relationships with retail? With all these questions in mind, I decided to circle back with one of our guests from Season 1 of Retail Reborn, Sheldon Solomon. Solomon is a professor of social psychology at Skidmore College in upstate New York and a pioneer in studying the impact of existential crisis on human behavior. He is co-author of multiple books, including The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life and In the Wake of 9-11, The Psychology of Terror. Much of Solomon's work has been based on theories posited by Ernest Becker, a professor of anthropology and author of the 1974 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, in which Becker surmises that an outsized portion of human behavior is governed by one thing alone, coping with our uniquely human cognizance of our own mortality. For some people... Those of us that are lucky enough to have had lunch and slept in a bed last night, the pandemic may have been a great opportunity to metaphorically and literally step back and to think about, well, what is it that is most important? What is it that's most meaningful? Since first speaking with Solomon over a year ago, this concept of mortality salience and the behaviors it prompts has been nothing short of revelatory, allowing me to contextualize so many of the societal behaviors and disruptions we've all witnessed. For example, in what many have termed the Great Resignation of 2021, one in four workers in both the UK and the US reportedly either quit or plan to quit their jobs in the next three to six months something that Solomon chalks up to the overwhelming search for meaning and purpose the pandemic has spurred. The pandemic gave people pause to have an existential moment. And for a large chunk of the workforce, particularly in the United States, when low-paying hourly wages are insufficient to have a decent existence, Yeah, I think many millions of people said, I'm no longer willing to work for 80 hours a week doing something that is monstrously meaningless and devoid of value in exchange for not enough money to eat. You know, and so whereas some folks might say, well, what I do every day is stupid and meaningless, 
but I get paid a whole lot and that compensates for that. I think it's the combination of low compensation in a social milieu where we're taught that if you're poorly paid, it's because you're stupid and lazy, on top of the fact that most jobs are stupid and meaningless. To me, that's like the most rational response so far to the pandemic. But this knowledge of human response to mortality has also left me questioning many of the consumer shifts we're witnessing. Are they really and truly longer-term changes in our buying behavior or simply a reactionary response to the cold tap on the shoulder from the existential threat of a pandemic? For example, Bain & Company reports, quote, the personal luxury goods industry has come roaring back, experiencing a V-shaped recovery in 2021. After a sharp contraction in 2020, the personal luxury goods market grew by 29% at current exchange rates to hit 283 billion euros, increasing the size of the market by 1% versus 2019 levels. For the future, Bain & Company estimates that the personal luxury goods market could reach 360 to 380 billion euros by 2025, with a sustained growth of 6 to 8% annually. It raises the question, is current spending in the luxury market truly a sustainable trend, or perhaps more a means of reaffirming self-worth in the face of a mortal threat? similar to the spending spree Americans went on in the aftermath of 9-11. Along the same line, says Solomon, one of our natural coping mechanisms when confronted with our mortality is to seek distraction from the threat. For some, this might have meant taking up a new hobby, reading more, or learning a new skill. For others, it meant engaging in riskier behaviors, such as gambling or overspending. Pre-pandemic, the world was already witnessing an increased spending on experiences, with a 2019 survey finding that 76% of all consumers would rather spend their money on experiences than on material items. But since the outbreak of COVID-19 and prolonged periods of lockdowns, the desire to take advantage of a renewed sense of freedom as the world opens up again has renewed consumer interest in the experiential economy and in some instances into the riskier behavior territory. The Business Insider reported last year a major increase in demand for extreme sports, stating the industry now has 490 million participants worldwide and brings in over $200 billion a year. This, they report, has seen companies supplying the adventure sports industry seeing huge spikes in revenue. GoPro's last earnings report, for example, showed a revenue increase of 71% year over year, while the first half of 2021 also saw sales of activewear up 28% compared to 2019, according to NPD. More broadly, I wonder how the experience of the pandemic will shape longer-term attitudes and behaviors in the retail market. My parents' consumer lives, for example, were profoundly shaped by events like the Great Depression and World War II, fostering in them an entrenched level of frugality and caution as consumers. Similarly, if we turn to millennials as an example, in a couple of short decades, they've lived through the events of 9-11, the Great Recession, and now a global pandemic. I was eager to get Solomon's take on how this will manifest itself in their future behavior. 
I do think it's a fine comparison to note that the millennials have been kicked in the psychological groin in extraordinary ways. And moreover, they're, I think, in an excruciating position because they're the first generation who didn't do better than their parents, but nobody told their parents. So they were squeezed in a world of diminishing opportunity and rising expectations. So I think they've been psychologically as well as financially crippled and are really wobbling as a result. And yeah, again, I'm trying to have it all ways because my sense is that there's a chunk of millennials that have checked out. I don't blame them for this, but they're in kind of a dissociated state and they don't see much in terms of the future. All right, but that's one chunk of millennial. There's another chunk of millennial who have been tremendously engaged and who are at the vanguard of thinking in terms of broad implications of this moment. And then there's, um, you know, other millennials, and I'm sure I'm leaving out categories, but who have been at the vanguard of insisting that a lot of the problems that seem superficially distinct that we now confront, you know, so we've got racism and we've got economic inequality and we've got the impending environmental doom. And they're like, those are all the same problem or they're different manifestations of the same underlying difficulties. And they're making very good faith efforts to try to resolve them. And so it may be that the consumer of the future won't be any one consumer at all, but a dichotomy in the most defined sense. For some, the experience of the pandemic may lead to little, if any, true reflection, choosing instead to anesthetize themselves with more distractions, more consumption, more social media, and less worry about the personal or social ramifications of that behavior. For another portion of society, it's become a moment of deep reflection, recalibration, and self-imposed austerity, a once-in-a-century rethink of consumer behaviors. Ultimately, the question is, which camp will prevail? Will we emerge from the pandemic with a new sense of care and consciousness as consumers, or a pent-up appetite for more and more stuff? How about both, even though I'm trying to have it both ways? I, I do right now in my existential psychology class, uh, we're reading a book by Rollo May uh, called The Cry for Myth. And there are these chapters about the Faust. And what Rollo May points out is that there's been certain times in Western civilization where it sure seems like someone's opened, you know, the proverbial bottle that has unleashed all of humankind's most unsavory characteristics, I think to a degree that we're there. So speaking just from the United States right now, but whatever happens here is going to spill over for better and worse. And retailers and brands, as Solomon sees it, also have a choice. They can choose to be the conduit to even more reckless levels of consumption or the arbiters of profoundly better societal outcomes. I think that a lot of folks in traditional business settings might find it very odd when you argue that 
retail might be at the forefront of anything positive. I find that a very attractive possibility because, as you know, Adam Smith, he just said, we are by nature bartering creatures. So that's not going to go away. We will always be consumers and manufacturers of commodities. And it's brilliant to say, why don't we use that as the foundation for the continued humanization of our species? And now a word from Adam Tritt, the chief development officer of our sponsor, Brookfield Properties, sharing his insights on retail from a real estate perspective. The retail consumer landscape is constantly evolving. For the last decade or so, we've been very intentionally focusing on the curation of our tenant mix and what the right balance of uses are. Certainly here in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of dramatic shifts in that, and we're going to have to continue to work towards what we view as the optimal merchandise allocation at each center. I think a couple of trends that emerge... People are prioritizing quality time with friends and family more than ever. So a continued lean into food and beverage and entertainment, a continued lean towards deep experiences that offer people a, a reason to be there. And then how do we support that with other merchandising that goes along with that trip? This notion of retail being at the forefront of something positive is important. Where so much of the retail and fashion industries have been party to the damage inflicted on the planet and humanity, it's also true that there are glimmers of hope coming from certain growth categories, not the least of which is resale, a category that in many ways provides a solution to the very dichotomy the future consumer represents. One who may be challenged financially, but also lives with the constant pressure to be fashionable. A consumer at once deeply concerned about the planet, but contributing through their spending to its further depletion. Something that, according to one expert, is a consequence of how we frame ourselves as consumers. I don't really like the word consumer. I think it stripes individuals from their agency and presents us as a single-minded person that has a name which is to buy. And we go way further than this. And actually, when you step aside from from that sole purpose, which would be consuming or buying things, you start to feel a sense of responsibility for those resources around that are no longer just a good to be consumed, but actually you can see where they come from, what energy, what, what inputs, what raw materials, what labor went into it. And then you don't see them as things or objects, you see them as resources. Waste is no longer an option when you start to think this way. And so, yeah, I think the world would be generally a way better place if we started to think a bit more like citizens than like consumers. How did we get here? To find out, I sat down with Justine Portery, the Global Head of Sustainability at Depop, an online peer-to-peer fashion marketplace with 30 million registered users from more than 150 countries, with an estimated 90% of them being under the age of 26. 
first of all, the rise of fast fashion means that people got access to more and more collections, more pieces at a cheaper price point. And then there's a demand driver. We know that now we live in a world where the sources of inspiration and the prompts that may push people, individuals to spend money on fashion have changed. What is drawing young consumers to resale? We conducted some research earlier in 2021 with Bain on this, and we validated our hypothesis, which is we know that they have a higher awareness of social and environmental issues and their purchase decisions are influenced by brands' commitments when it comes to those issues. Around 70% of our users said that when a brand has some commitments on the environment or social sustainability, this has an impact on how they shop. And they also take action in their daily lives. So around 90% of our users made some tweaks, some changes to be more eco-friendly in their day-to-day, which is the big gap, 90%. And the beauty of this is that they definitely see fashion as an area where they can have agency and they definitely associate their purchases or lack of new purchases as a way for them to reduce their consumptions and to do their part. So they, they really associate the secondhand shopping with a path in the right direction. And here again is what has become a familiar paradox. While young consumers express an interest in more conscious patterns of consumption, they are simultaneously fueling ever faster fashion. But to that, Portery offers an interesting take. It's not their fault. It's a very complex question. And as you looked into, into the research, even cognitive researchers have not nailed this, which is called that value action gap, where you say something is important to you, but then it, it does not necessarily translate into how you behave. And there are a number of factors that can influence this gap. And I think that we need to be cognizant of the environment in which those young people evolve, which is an environment where everything arrives the next day, everything is convenient, everything is accessible. So they have those expectations from fashion as well. And fast fashion hits those boxes. But from a behavioral perspective, one of the barriers to actually aligning value with action, and as I said, it's one levers among others, is the design and the ease. So if we want someone to adopt a more eco-friendly or more socially friendly attitude, what's the alternative that we offer? And is the alternative as easy, as affordable, as seamless as the other option? And that's how at Depop we reconcile this. We by no means say that we're the silver bullet, but we contribute to this by offering to our users an experience which is really similar to what they know. It's shopping on a mobile from someone, but you can scroll it. It has a look and feel like social media. It's something that you know, so you can engage with, and then you can receive your piece. And actually by making it as easy as shopping new, that's how we plant that seed. A shift that's clearly well underway. 
The global resale market is estimated to be approximately $28 billion US, a market according to one study by ThreadUp and Global Data that is expected to nearly triple by 2025, something Portery wholeheartedly concurs with for two reasons. Improved levels of access to quality resale items via more marketplaces and retailers, most particularly perhaps mainstream fashion retailers, from Nordstrom and Harvey Nichols to Nike, Levi's and H&M, retailers are becoming resellers. More importantly though, says Portery, it's because resale fashion has become truly fashionable. Where do you usually buy your clothes from? Like sort of high street, but sometimes I like to go in like charity shops. Mostly secondhand stuff. Like charity shops, actually. Thrift stores or like secondhand. Secondhand clothes too, mm -hmm. yes. I think it's not a trend. I think it's a movement and it's here to stay. First point is we don't really have a choice. We know we have nine years left to really, really tackle climate change if we don't want to reach some, some tipping points and have consequences that we can't even comprehend at this stage. So it's all hands on deck time. And then I think attitudes have changed and what used to be seen with a stigma buying secondhand or making secondhand gifts, I remember like 10 years ago, was a total taboo because you would ask, oh, where did you buy it? And if you had buy the secondhand, it's like, oh, that's really weird. Like someone has worn that before. Whereas now, especially with Depop and especially as the young generation grasped it and grabbed the concept and made it theirs, now it comes with clout and it has a powerful aura to it and social credit that comes to it because it means uniqueness and because it means you go out of your way to express yourself and also now on top of it you have that positive twist which is actually I'm also taking care or I'm doing my part for the planet at the same time. But I wonder is resale even enough to drive the fashion and retail industries to become forces for good? The short answer is no. <laughs> As I said earlier, resale is, is a piece of the puzzle, but we need to act throughout the fashion value chain. A value chain that is plagued by waste, compounded by brands within the industry operating against what are often not strict regulation, but loose codes of conduct. However, that might be set to change. In March of 2021, the European Parliament voted overwhelmingly in favor of legislation that would make companies more accountable for both the environmental and social damage done through their supply chains. A condition that many believe can be solved at least in large part by not only extending the utility of the products we produce, but also by stepping back and rethinking the underlying idea of what fashion is. Digital fashion is clothes that you don't actually wear. You'd wake up in the morning and take a selfie and then just do all the extra bits later. It's like Instagram filters, like the off-white filter on Instagram. It's also kind of like paper dolls. If I'd have had a Bitcoin for every time that I'd heard the phrase, the emperor's new clothes, I'm like, okay, you have to just move beyond that mindset. Oh, yeah, it's fashion that doesn't physically exist, but is it valid? Can you wear it? Does it exist in the digital realm? Can you trade it? Can you wear it? Absolutely, you can. So you do have to make this mindset shift and really embrace this world and really see its possibilities because it's not going anywhere. Michaela La Rosa is head of content and strategy at The Fabricant, 
a digital fashion house based in Amsterdam. Hearing her describe the state of digital fashion takes me back to the early days of social media. Remember when some were saying, why would I want to follow someone just to see photos of what they're having for lunch? Yet at the same time, there were those that understood that social media was part of a larger societal movement. Conversations today about digital fashion ring eerily familiar. So if this isn't just about a new pair of digital shoes, what is the deeper meaning in digital fashion and why will we buy it? When we think about digital fashion, we don't necessarily just think of it as a way of being digitally dressed. It's a way of iterating your identity in virtual spaces. So, of course, fashion's always been the front line of our identity uh, in the physical world, and then it will be even more so in the virtual environment. So if, for example, you join a virtual meeting, which I'm sure pretty much everybody has done recently, you might choose a digital fashion iteration for yourself appropriate to that environment, perhaps something more sober, shall we say, more professional looking. And then you switch environments later in the day to going to a digital concert in a virtual world where you see a big name artist. You want to make a bit of a splash visually. You're hanging out with your friends. So maybe that's where you let your digital fashion imagination run wild and you wear a garment that's physically impossible in the real world, something made of light or thunderstorms or flames. Really, the creative palette with digital fashion is is as big as your imagination because, of course, there are no physical boundaries to creation. So that's a whole world in itself. Listening to La Rosa, it strikes me, tying back to human psychology, that it's this innate need as human beings for identity and self-expression that are driving the idea of digital fashion. And perhaps it's been our pandemic plunge into the deep end of online life that has awakened a need to better articulate our unique style and personalities through digital apparel or skins. A means of replicating that same feeling you get walking into a meeting or event, wearing something that stands out from the crowd, something that in the homogenous and bland world of Zoom calls and FaceTime, we've been unable to express. Moreover, digital fashion, like all fashion, is about declaring one's sense of belonging to a community. From a purely practical standpoint, though, I wonder where will these items actually be worn and who will wear them? I would say the gaming platform is going to be the big utility, but more around the idea of the gamification of brands. We're having a conversation the other day about the idea of will more brands end up employing digital fashion designers, which seems very likely, but also likely is will more fashion houses end up employing developers and gamers within their organization. The projected global market for virtual goods is indeed growing at an exponential pace, and it's not limited to apparel. Sales of digital real estate, that being plots of digital space within various online platforms, for example, topped $500 million in 2021, according to Metametric Solutions, a market now on pace to reach nearly $1 billion in 2022. And in a clear nod to the fashion industry, Metaverse platform Decentraland will be hosting its first Metaverse Virtual Fashion Week in 2022, as brands work to meld together their offerings of both physical and digital couture. It's always very interesting when we speak to young people about digital fashion. There's very much like, um, oh, and of course, of course that exists, because they're digital natives, 
who have only ever known a digital world, it, it makes complete sense. You don't really have to explain very much. It's like, oh, yeah, I get that. So for the rest of us that haven't necessarily um, grown up with a purely digital environment, it will be a process of familiarising ourselves and expressing ourselves in this way. Again, I would say the pandemic's probably played its part and that we've all become a little bit more used to virtual meetings and maybe virtual interfaces in the, as part of our daily life in a way that we just didn't do maybe two years ago. But the other and perhaps more immediate application of the work the Fabricant team are attacking is within the fashion supply chain, using innovations in virtual design to stem some of the industry's waste. A big part of what we do actually right now when we work with brands is transition their physical sampling process, which is extraordinarily labor intensive, cutting out physical patterns, sending bolts of fabric across the planet, sending them back across the planet, then tweaking them a little bit, sending them back. It's crazy, carbon downloads. So if we taught people in these existing garment communities to begin to iterate in 3D so they can begin to understand the digital world, to intervene in this wasteful narrative, but in a way that works for them and, and monetizes their work, yeah, it's going to be a matter of education, I think, Brands are also baking virtual fashion into the consumer retail experience, as well as the design process and products themselves. Earlier in the series, luxury retail sector analyst and author of The Bling Dynasty, Erwin Romborg, shared his thoughts on the impact virtual realities will have on the sector, one that he believes is creating a fundamental shift of how we define luxury to assure that it appeals to the next generation consumer. I think there's no limit to how much of the premium wallet you can target, probably leaving aside smartphones, which is a a completely different industry. But yeah, I think it's notably the role of LVMH as the leader of the industry to redefine what luxury actually means. And, you know, it's interesting because they actually bought a hospitality chain pre-COVID. They actually bought Remova, which is a sort of pure play on travel as well pre-COVID. It's easy to say, oh, the timing of those two acquisitions was awful because the world has shut down. But the reality is, I think when we talk again about hospitality in two, three years, when we talk again about travel, people will say, oh, in hindsight, that was incredibly smart. Because again, you are looking at a few markets that are crowded. Do you need another handbag company? Do you need another footwear company? Do you need another accessories or you know, ready-to-wear heavy brand in your portfolio? Unlikely. But can you be creative in terms of thinking about what else you can sell to that premium consumer? And again, you know, we talked previously about products versus services. And my answer to that is it's not an either or. You know, premium consumers will want to wear great products and they'll want to remember great experiences. And if the same company can sell both, so be it. The impact of the results, however, might be a little slower to see. I think it only goes one way. I mean, I I think for next year, it's probably still going to be a bit of a rounding error in terms of contribution to sales, uh, but it'll creep up year after year. But, you know, a bit like for online sales contribution, it's very unlikely that the brands or the groups will disclose how important it is for their business, but it's gradually going to become more meaningful, even though the starting off point will be a bit of a rounding error. What could be meaningful is actually the profits, because if you think about it, even if it's minimal in terms of sales, the cost of goods is also going to be quite minimal because you're going to use either external parties to whom you're going to pay design fees or you're basically going to 
have your own design studio in-house, work on different projects. And so the cost of doing business in that virtual product uh, arena is going to be relatively low. So it could well be for some brands that it, it becomes margin accretive even. And yet, as promising as these efforts may be, are they enough to turn the tide of environmental decay caused by the fashion and retail industries? There are those who believe that more, much more, will be required. And that sooner than later, that not only may, but should have a direct impact on what we buy. Now, first, I would say that we read the same survey. So, yes, I do believe that younger consumers are more and more informed about sustainability. Recently, we saw BCG studies showing that two-thirds look at sustainability when making purchase decisions. We also see that the younger generation is more and more involved. They are more and more activists and they are pushing brands to evolve. We can find numerous examples. But of course, and there is always a discrepancy between principle and actions. If we want to move from fast fashion to slow fashion, it's not only about consumer, it's about also about companies, about governments. That's Aude Verne, Chief Sustainability Officer at Richemont-owned luxury brand Chloe. From where she sits, the consumer of the future will not be guided by any one trend, technology, or market leader. Instead, she says, changing consumer perceptions around consumption, ownership, and impact will require an all-hands-on-deck approach. Now, if you look at the fashion industry uh, overall, I think the first question is for me about changing habits. You can buy one item, which is a slightly higher price and lower impact attribute instead of 10. You can buy secondhand, you can swap. So today, younger generation have much more option to move to a circular model and to buy less. If you look at figures, it's uh, impressive. So we must really rethink the way uh, we, we buy clothes. I think it's the first very important point. And I think it also implies a change in creativity in the way we see fashion. It also implies a difference in how we view the concept of ownership. As Vern points out, pre-pandemic, there was rapidly expanding acceptance of rental as an alternative to ownership, particularly as it applies to luxury garments. In 2019, the global online clothing rental market reached a value of $1.26 billion U.S., a market expected to grow at a compounded rate of 8.7% from 2020 to 2025. But Vern adds, it's also about challenging the core ethos of fashion and the materials it's made from. It's also about the emotional durability of clothes. Our artistic director, Gabriela Hurst, she really wants to uh, design clothes that women will keep for years, will wear, would want to wear for a long time. And this is sometimes something that we may have forgotten. So first, a change of habits. And then, of course, there is an issue uh, about price. For sure, lower impact material, lower impact option are uh, more expensive. And that is where, again, legislation uh, could help. During COP26, we support a request from a textile exchange with other 50 other fashion and textile companies to incentivize lower impact material option and to encourage companies to switch to lower impact material option. So it's for me, it's both ways, changing habits, but also changing our industry, changing roles. It's a mindset shift for both brands and consumers alike. 
After all, the very premise upon which the retail industry operates is one of products and designs being ephemeral and evolving, out with the old, in with the new. For this very reason, says Vern, governments must become more active stakeholders, not simply calculating the damage from what we as consumers choose to buy, but taking a greater role in determining what we're buying and how it's sold to us. First, I think they can encourage transparency towards consumers. So that's laws that are in discussion in Europe, I think in the US too, towards uh, demanding brands to disclose more information to their consumers, where the products are made, in which factory, with which material. Up to now, the traceability of fashion compared to certain products is not sufficient. So I think government can encourage these trends after they can, as mentioned, for the lower impact material, but they can incentivize best practice. That could be also interesting to push brands uh, to switch more quickly. And there could also, um, what would be interesting, but it's not yet a plan, but could come, it's to have more standardized uh, measurement tools. Because uh, so far, for instance, if you look at uh, emissions, more and more companies are measuring their emissions, communicating about it and setting goals, but it's not uh, standardized at all. So there is a work on standardization of measurement of impact for fashion brands that could be interesting. Bern says that simply enforcing change from the outside will only ever be limited in its effect. Ultimately, it's about aligning the culture of the brand to a new way of thinking and operating, a journey she and her team at Chloe embarked upon in 2021. So one first answer was to try to transform a Chloe into a B Corp certified company, which happened in October last year, and that led to many uh, transformations. And that will lead to many more transformation because it's really a journey of continuous improvement. So it's first big change, becoming B Corp. And of course, to become a B Corp certified implied a lot of other change. But to give you a few examples, we are integrating social enterprise into our supply chain. So it's not only uh, about working better with our existing supplier, it's also uh, having an NGO as a supplier and supplier that when we order product, we know that we will have an impact on people's life. To give you a concrete example, we are working uh, with Made 51, which has been created with the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. And we have uh, people that used to be artisans in their original country and that are now into camps and that can build a living from their craft by working with this organization. Or uh, we have um, an organization with working with women surviving of violence who are trained to become uh, artisans. A lot of initiatives like that that we are integrating into our supply chain and that can lead to a positive impact objectives. As for her outlook on the future of the industry's capacity for change, Fern believes the future is bright. I'm very optimistic by nature, but yes, I would say that I see uh, news every day that makes me uh, feel optimistic. For me, it's a little bit like the digital uh, revolution a few years ago. A lot is happening around sustainability. And so there is hope. Hope for a future where retail can indeed position itself as a force for good in the world. While everything 
the nature of where we live and work, how and where we shop, the technologies and tools we use, and even the very nature of the things we buy are evolving and shifting. What we see is that the consumer of the future is ultimately driven by the same intrinsic human motivators that have guided our behavior since the first retailer met their first customer. We seek security, self-worth, belonging, and some sense of higher meaning in our lives. Retail, both in the real or virtual world, can offer all of these things. And with an unprecedented universe of products and brand alternatives available to us, it is the fulfillment of these higher needs beyond product that will carry the day. For retailers that deliver on that opportunity, the future will indeed be bright. This has been Retail Reborn, presented by Brookfield Properties. I'm Doug Stevens. Thanks for listening.